0: I just, I really felt that nobody cared, nobody saw uh, my worth. And so for her to say, hey, you're, you're a really good person, just in general, like I see that. I see that without the, the brokenness that you were born into, that you could really become something, without that, you are beautiful. This is the Foster Movement Podcast. Helping you work with others to provide more than enough for kids and families in foster care where you live. Here are your hosts, Jason Weber and Diego Fuller.
1: Hey, welcome to the Foster Movement Podcast. I'm here with Diego Fuller. Hey, Diego. What up, Jason? How you doing today? I'm doing well. You doing all
2: right today? Man, I am doing pretty good. Yo, last week I got to go to the movies with my family to go see the new
1: Venom movie. Oh, nice.
2: Yeah, it was pretty cool. It was nice. cool. When's the last
1: time you guys went to the movies? Oh, the last time? I don't know about... It might have been uh, it might have been Avengers. Uh, Avengers Infinity, Infinity Wars? Wars.
2: Yeah. Oh, that's my movie. That's a long time ago.
1: It was a while ago. It's been a while. <laughs> How did you like it? I went with my daughter, my teenage daughter. Um, I mean, I thought it was good. I thought it was nice. really good. You know, what was interesting is uh, at the end of it, um, you know... Like, spoiler alert, if you haven't watched this movie, then you might want to turn off the podcast <laughs> Right? right, Or you should have already watched it. You should have already watched right. it. We don't feel bad for you. <laughs> um, so at the end, um, so basically, like, a whole bunch of superheroes, they all disintegrate yeah. into dust. Like, Back to they dust, all, right. They all die. Right. Everybody die. Well, not everybody. But anyway, um, so I'm sitting there, and my daughter, my teenage daughter's on my right, mm-hmm. and then I'm sitting next. There's this other teenager that I don't know, sitting on my left, this, right, girl, right. this girl, and she is like... As these superheroes are disintegrating, she's like right. weeping. Oh yeah, like I wow, like <laughs> like, like just crying. Wow, and and I'm and wow, you know. I mean, I like superhero movies, right. but I'm not. You know, I don't know not everything there to is to start know. Crying if they, I was like wow, this girl was really into this, and 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 so part of it was, I mean, she just obviously cared about those characters right. a lot. That's exactly. part of it, exactly. But part of it for me was like, well, but that's why. That's why they make sequels. Like, they're just going to come out with another exactly. one. They're, all coming, so they're all coming back. They're all coming back. They're all coming back. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and so, uh, I mean, I guess you could call that hope, right? That I knew that um, that those characters uh, are coming back. Exactly. I knew that there was a, another movie coming. There was mm-hmm. a sequel coming. And, um, you know, our, our story today uh, is somewhat like that. Yeah. Uh, we're going to get to talk to... Chardonnay Rosa, Mm -hmm. uh, who spent time in foster care, and there was something that God had placed in her from a young age, and um, though things were very difficult, as you'll hear, Mm -hmm. um, she always knew that there was going to be another story. Right. There was a sequel.
2: Exactly. Mm -hmm. And
1: uh, that hope... um, is what we're going to be talking about. So uh, we're going to talk about that with her. And then we're going to talk about the movies. We're going to talk about filmmaking. Right. And uh, we got some uh, amazing people who um, are filmmakers who've made uh, the the films called Removed Mm -hmm. um, and Removed Part 2. Right. And they do an incredible job of giving the truth about foster care but showing the hope in that. So we'll be talking to Nathaniel and Christina Matnick about hope in filmmaking and hope in foster care. So let's go ahead and start with our interview with Chardonnay. I'm here with Chardonnay Rosa from Hawaii. Hello, Chardonnay. How are you?
0: I'm doing good, Jason.
1: So I've heard you describe your early growing up year Chardonnay as really chaotic Uh, Can you tell me what was that like for you? How did you feel during that time?
0: My feelings from a really young age, I realized that they weren't really validated. You know, I could cry and nobody would listen. I could get mad. If I acted out in any sort of way, I would be abused. And so I was really trained to function in a way that would, protect my being. So in this survival mode, how can I somewhat stay in the shadows and just go through the motions and hang on to this hope that maybe one day my, day my life would look a little different than what was in front of me.
1: So what were some of the realities that you were living at that time?
0: Realities, I would say, just Going from home to home, you know, my mom would just drop me off sometimes. And I didn't know if I was going to see her tomorrow or next week. And sometimes it was just strangers or people I I knew somewhat. Some was family members. But what hurt me a lot was I had family members who would, my mom would bring me to their door and they would be like, well, are you going to pay me to watch your daughter? You know, are you going to? compensate me because she's here. She's using my resources. And so my mom would just be like, it's fine, I'll take her and then drop me off somewhere else. And so that really led to not feeling safe um, because she, she constantly had all these different boyfriends. And so I was bought into all these different houses with all these different people and constantly just realizing that she put me forth. You know, it was herself, it was drugs, it was men, and then it was Chardonnay. And so I had to kind of look out for myself um, constantly, regardless of where she put me. And so there was times where I allowed myself to have emotions, but I really tried to make it so that no one would see that and just try to put a a strong face on.
1: You talk about going into a lot of different... Um, homes even before you ever entered foster care. Uh, At what point did you finally enter foster care?
0: I was about 14, and I had just... It was through health... I guess you could say somewhat healthy adults who were watching my life and were constantly speaking into it and just acknowledging truth. For example, I would asked to spend the night at a friend's house that I knew from church who had offered. And his mom just looked at me and she said, you know, Chardonnay, you're a really good girl. Like, I see you and I see your heart, um, but you have just been dealt a really bad stack of cards. And, and for her to tell me that, you know, it placed value on my life because prior to that, uh, whether I was in you know relatives homes or strangers or homes within the church no everyone had always viewed me as a nuisance and a problem and i just i really felt that nobody cared nobody saw uh, my worth and so for her to say hey you're you're a really good person just in general like i see that i see that without the the brokenness that you were born into that You know, you could really become something. Without that, you are beautiful in in a sense. And so, because she said that, I said, "Oh, wow! You know, like you're right." (laughs) And so, uh, she actually, my that particular friend's mom had posed the idea. She said, "Hey, have you ever considered calling CPS?" And of course, when sometimes you come from that lifestyle, they use CPS as a threat. Like, you better behave before I call CPS or You know, if these people come and ask questions, you learn to lie because you're going to be taken away. And so it wasn't only me, but other kids I was around were painted this really bad picture of what CPS was. Um, And so when talking to her, she had painted another aspect, which was an aspect that offered stability. It meant that I would have a home, a roof over my head, you know, people there, and that my mom would not have control because she would just do with me really whatever she wanted. If I was living somewhere, she would either pull me out or manipulate the family into having her stay there with me. And so finally, after hearing my options, I was really at a breaking point where I'm 14. You know, I'm trying to get good grades in school and really. When I got older, I realized I have a voice, so now I'm going to start speaking and, and testing. And it was at that age that I was like, I'm, I'm completely done. Like I have a choice. I don't have to put up with this lifestyle of being around drugs and being around um, perversion and abuse and ne- neglect. I can choose now to somewhat change my surroundings. And so that was the, the point where I was like, I'm going to put myself into foster care.
1: So how did that process work? What did you do? You, I mean, you, you just called?
0: Yeah, pretty much. Um, she provided, My friend's mom provided me with the number and she'd helped me call. And the next day I had CPS workers at the door and they just asked me some questions. And they, at the time, this particular friend's mom was did foster in the past. And so they had let me stay with her temporarily. Um, However, she'd become a little dysfunctional. She'd picked up a drinking habit. Anyways, long story short, I was able to recognize red flags uh, and say, so I called up my CPS work immediately, and I said, hey, I know dysfunction, and this is dysfunction. And she was like, okay, sure, just get ready and go to school, and I'll pick you up after. And so that was, she picked me up, and that was, she led me to my second placement. I was almost put into a group home. Thankfully, they found a loophole in which I could go into a therapeutic home for emergency care for about 30 days.
1: Now, Chardonnay, you have mentioned to me that uh, one of your earliest memories is uh, a still small voice that said something to you. Uh, What was that?
0: So, really, my earliest memory was just this voice that said, your life is going to be different. Your life is going to be different. And so, throughout my life, as I was watching my mother, almost in, like, mourning, because I just hated what I was around, I held on to this hope that said my life was going to be different. And really, that was the, I guess, my mantra or my, what I h- held on to um, For example, when I saw my mom getting beat up by her boyfriends, although emotionally, because of how much I was exposed to that and I was a a bit numb to it, like, it didn't faze me. She could get beat up and I would just be watching TV. But internally, I said, my life isn't going to look like that. I'm not going to have a boy, you know, a husband that beats me. And when she was smoking drugs or fighting with people, I said, that's not going to be me. So when there was kids around my age who were some offering me drugs or really wanting me to participate in the things they were participating in, I just said no. And It's funny because I remember telling someone no because they were trying to force me to smoke a cigarette. And I said, no, because my life is going to be different. And an older kid had looked at me and she said, yeah, well, I used to say the same thing when I was your age, but look at my life now. She was like, you're going to eventually become just like me. So it's your choice if you want to start now or later. And in my head, with everything, clinging on to that hope of, no, that's not going to be me. Like My mission is that my life is going to look different.
1: So clinging on to that hope, was there ever a, a point in your life where you realized that that went from hope to reality, that, that my life is not only going to be different, it is different? Do you remember a moment like that?
0: Well, at about 11, I was invited to church. And so I you know, asked the people I was living with, hey, can I go? And so they said, yeah, we'll allow it. So I stepped into the church and instantly I just, I knew that my surroundings were different because for the first time in my life, I, I looked at these people's faces and I began to see joy and something in me said, I want that joy. I want what these people have. And so really church became my escape place. Anytime, anytime... I had a chance to go, whether it was Tuesday or Wednesday or Friday um, or Sunday, I would I'd be like, sign me up. And so it was through that process of just wanting to be in a different environment that thought of me, my life is gonna be different, started to come into play. And so one of the most pivotal moments I would say was one day there was a guest speaker that came over, and mid mid-sermon, he stopped. And he like turned his head and he said, hey, little girl, you stand up. And, and I remember being in the front row on the side and standing up and he looked at me. He said, I really feel like the Lord wants me to tell you right now, I love you. And at that moment, you know, going to church, you constantly hear Jesus loves you. And, but for me, I was like, yeah, he loves everybody. But for a man to stop his sermon and, And really say it it was like for the first time it resonated in my heart and I thought wow I'm loved because it's it's it was said in a special way it was independent regardless of anyone around me and so I remember just crying for the first time like this barrier that I had within my heart just broke down and then I no longer came because the joy on people's faces I came because I realized this is where my source of love comes from. And after that point, you know, I remember people worshiping God and thinking, wow, I wish one day I would be worthy enough to lift my hands. And so it was just very ironic just having this mindset to feel so low that I, I can't even worship the God that everyone else is worshiping. Um, but through my time there, although my life didn't change, like my situation, my home situation didn't change, and the chaos didn't change, but there was just this hope now that was attached to that phrase where I thought, okay, now I can live my life in this chaos but cling on to something.
1: Mm. That's so powerful. That is so powerful. So that happened when you were 11. Mm -hmm. um, And at 14, you went into foster care and you were in foster care until when?
0: Well, you know, the initial plan was reconciliation with my mom. And I remember she, you know, she attempted to fulfill the plan, the year plan that it took. And I remember we had like a meeting And I looked at her because I knew that her attempt was sincere, but I knew that it wasn't going to happen. And I looked at her and I said, you will never be able to change for me. You will only be able to change for yourself. And if I'm your motive, it just won't last. It's not sustainable. And I told her, but I forgive you and I'm okay. And just know that... I'm okay. I don't think I verbally said I love you because I think at that point I didn't necessarily have any feelings towards my mom. It was very numb, but there was an understanding and I wanted her to know that that's where I stood. And so then my foster parents took custody of me, um, but they did not adopt me. And so I, at 10th grade, everything was finalized. And so being about 15 my brain switched where for the first time in my life i no longer had to worry about shelter i no longer had to worry about where i'm going to eat where i'm going to sleep my clothing i finally had an environment where i could learn what it was like to be a kid and think like a kid and not have these these burdens on my shoulders and that's when i decided okay what's next now that i don't have to worry about Really, my basic needs, I can worry about my future.
1: You said that um, they took custody of you, but they did not adopt you. Uh, did you have feelings about that either way?
0: At the moment, not really. They had said, oh, they had listed it was because of money purposes and that they didn't want my mom to feel like her title was taken away, which I, I just had accepted Whatever you can give me, I'll take because whatever's on the table is better than what I had before. And so it really didn't bother me. Like I thought, hey, this is a great deal. Financially, I understand what they're saying. And so at the moment, I had no feelings towards it.
1: You say at the moment, but since then.
0: So at the time, I thought, I really genuinely thought it didn't affect me. And so I told them I was fine. But later in the night, they actually approached me and offered to adopt me. And the father, Brad McDaniel, began to speak of what his heart was as a father towards me. And at that moment, although I was unaware of what adoption really meant, I began to realize that there was this different element and that it was something that was lacking within my life. And so... At that moment, I began to connect the dots, and I realized that adoption and legal custody were completely different things, and being a part of a family unit consisted of elements that I had truly always longed for but never really thought I could have. So that night, I just went home, and I cried. I cried because I was just becoming fully aware of these holes that were in my heart, being so independent. I began to see the lack that I had, and that lack was a family unit.
1: And that was actually fairly recent, and you guys continue to dialogue and, and process and pray about what that would look like, correct? Yes. Yeah, that's that's amazing. Um, uh, and I know uh, all of our listeners uh, pray with you guys as you um, think through that. There's a lot to consider there, right? Um, so that's amazing. Shortening God has obviously brought you through a lot of different things. And when you think about your life and your experiences, uh, what is it that you now are most passionate about when it comes to other kids in foster care?
0: Definitely seeing the lack and the struggle that I had to go through, I realize and have a deeper empathy for kids that go through trauma and kids who are without a home. And so, really, my heart is to. You know, be a helping hand to say that I understand, I may not go through your situation, but really we all long to be in a family, we all long to not be judged, and to really be walked through the process step by step with people that really care, regardless of the mistakes that we make or the troubles that we go through, or really the hassle that sometimes we are and the barrier that we create towards people. um, one thing that I'm passionate about is being that person to really stand in the gap through the rough and hard times for other kids.
1: Thank you so much for spending time with us.
0: Yeah, I enjoyed it. Thank you so much.
1: She's amazing, right? Man, she's awesome. Um, you know, it strikes me that she had this hope mm-hmm. um, that things are going to be different for her. Right. And she was able to hold on. Onto that, she would face these other things. Uh, this girl that was talking about smoking, mm-hmm. um, these other things that, through all of that, mm-hmm. she just clung to that anchor, and it kept her from being, you know, tossed around. Right.
2: And what blows my mind is that she's um, a lot of kids and students and just young people. They give in to their that peer pressure, you know. But when that young lady asked her, "Hey, do this and do that and smoke this," she was like, "No," nah, because my life was going to be different, you know, and so, yeah. um, and she stood on that. Man, that's that's amazing.
1: You know, it's amazing the power of hope and mm-hmm. how it provides a guiding uh, sort of a north star, right, uh, for all of us. Yeah, right. We all um, carry on every day because we hope for something. Exactly. And that element of hope um, is, of course. Crucial mm-hmm. to just making it through the next day sometimes. Exactly. Um, but it's also a really important element of storytelling. Right. And our next guests, uh, Nathaniel and Christina Matnick, they are uh, tremendous filmmakers we mm. mentioned at the beginning. Yeah, awesome. Um, and they have created some films that have made a huge yeah. impact uh, in the foster care world. They do a tremendous job of... Capturing the realities of foster care Mm -hmm. and still making sure that this element of hope Mm -hmm. is there. Right. So let's listen to that interview with Nathaniel and Christina Matnick. I'm here with Nathaniel and Christy Matnick, and they have produced a couple of films uh, that many of you are going to be familiar with uh, called Removed and then Removed Part Two. Uh, Amazing pieces of work that uh, many advocates in the foster care space uh, have used uh, over the last several years to just help others understand the realities of foster care. Um, And we are thrilled that they're able to spend some time with us uh, talking a little bit about hope. Uh, Guys, welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us. Jason. We're excited. So um, you guys, I'd, I'd love to Uh, first find out from you how it became important to you to tell the stories of kids in foster care
2: so yeah we were actually in well started when we were in training to become foster parents and um the first class they were showing us a powerpoint of what kids in foster care might say if they if they were able to articulate the things that were on their hearts, and um, it was well put together in the sense that it gripped our hearts, but other than that, it was it was it was you know it wasn't that well put together in the sense that it wasn't that great. Um, but it kind of <laughs> the vision for okay, wow, so much of our training has been about what it's like to be a foster parent and how to be a foster parent. And very little of it had been, this is what it's like for the kid, except for that one particular PowerPoint. And I remember um, turning to Christy while we were watching it and saying, we have to make this as a film. Like we have to make the film version of this PowerPoint. Um, And so that was really what started it.
1: So in those films, you guys do an incredible job of capturing gut-wrenching uh, despair at times of foster care and what can be involved in that. And, and like you said, what it's like for a child going through that. Um, but yet you always seem to incorporate hope. Why is that important to you?
2: I think, I mean, part of it is as simple as just when you're making a film, it needs to be entertaining so that people will watch it. And I don't think anyone is interested in watching something that is just purely depressing. I feel like there's so many amazing movies that are coming out that are depressing. And I think to myself, I really want to see that movie, but I never get around to it because I'm not interested in just being depressed. And I think part of it is that, where it's just like it needs to be watchable. I think the more important reason is simply that we're casting a vision or we have to cast a vision for what life can be. Um, I think when we realize that kids who are going to be watching this, are actually going to be living the same story. It's, we have to be able to, to cast a vision so that they can come away from watching it, feeling like they can come out of it.
1: So in, as a general principle, what role in, uh, storytelling does that, that idea of hope play? I mean, obviously it makes it more watchable, but what does it, what does it do for a storyline?
3: Hope is like everything, right? Hope, hope makes us believe that things could be different and that change can come. And especially for youth in foster care, that's so important. And a lot of times that hope is not like present in their surroundings and maybe no one in their life is actually holding them out, that out for them. So then we see our job is to like, hold that out for them, um, in the story. And also just practically speaking, when you feel depressed, you don't want to make any change in your life or in anyone else's life. But when you feel inspired and you see that there is hope, then you want to be moved to action. Hmm. And that's that was like a huge part of our goal in the films is let's, if we had enough foster parents who were good and loving and kind, then we wouldn't be having stories of foster parents that are bad. And so I think that was part of like our impetus was if we can get more people, especially people of faith, that will love these kids and be Jesus to them in very practical ways, then we wouldn't have all these stories, hopefully, of all these like terrible situations that kids in foster care find themselves in where their foster home is worse than the home they were originally in with their parents. Like, I think that was part of our... That was part of our goal, so I don't know if that answers your question. But hope is hope is like everything, right? That's Jesus offers us hope, and good stories offer hope. Yeah,
1: you know, I think philosophically we can all agree that hope is important in the foster care equation. People listening to this are uh, all over the map in terms of you know what they do or who they are. We've got foster parents, we've got advocates, we've got child welfare professionals, um, and I'm wondering what insight you guys can give, uh, in terms of what does it look like practically to provide windows of hope to kids in situations that look hopeless to them. And frankly, sometimes look hopeless to us too. I'll
2: start by talking about the girl that we adopted out of foster care. Um, specifically for her, honestly, I don't know what it looks like. She's young. Um, but she knows her story very well. Um, because her her bio parents you know kept her up to date on everything so for her it's not so much uh verbally talking through things with her it's more just living life with her and helping teach her what it looks like to let people love her and to love her and um and she's always asking questions about her, her bio parents and why did this happen to them? Or why did this happen to me? Or why did they do this thing? And, and trying to figure out how to talk through it with her in a way that, that both honors her bio family and also shows her that um, she, she's, you know, that's not how that's not her life right now in a positive way. I think, I think, you know, with our own daughter, it's such a complicated thing. You know, it's easy enough just to say to someone that you're not related to, to to be able to cast a vision for them, and it's a very different thing when you're living life with someone on a daily basis in, you know, in that re- in a close relationship, it's not so much just a, like, a, a speech <laughs> that you give, it's like a, a little thing every single day and, and like, a, like a nurturing sort of thing. Um, but I think when we do it in storytelling, it's simply because we believe that that you have to have a vision to be able to go somewhere. You have to have like a vision cast for you to to know where you're headed. And I think that makes the difference is having someone, whether it's a person or an adult in your life, or whether it's the spirit speaking to you, that's saying like, this isn't, this doesn't have to be the end of your story. This doesn't have to be what your story looks like in the end. This isn't your future. Like, and then you have that to hold on to. And to remember as you're, as you're moving towards it and going through life, I feel like that is one of the key things that makes the difference, which is why we really try to do that in our storytelling. And that is, and we've heard that through, through, through so many people's stories who've come out of it so healthy is they had this internal sense that either had been cast to them by someone or they felt like the spirit was telling them was that this isn't going to be my life.
3: Yeah, I think, but back to your original question, hope, casting hope for a child in your home, I think is just an ongoing thing and, and honestly requires a lot of prayer and like, you know, consulting people who are, are more expert in different areas than, than I am. And just like saying, okay, how can I best support this child? How can I best love her? How can I best, um, you know, be that solid rock for her as she's navigating all the emotions and, um, kind of things she has to deal with because of her story. How can I be that safe space and then cast the hope as necessary or just show it, you know, showing a different life and what, what that looks like. I think it's different for each child in terms of like specifically how you're going to do that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So you guys are working on a a new project that I am super excited about, um, telling the stories or allowing, uh, former foster youth to tell their stories in a, in a, book uh, that that you guys are compiling. And, um, you know, in light of your comment earlier, Nathaniel, about, you know, just the sort of the luxury of being able to write a script um, and, and being able to introduce elements of hope in that very deliberately is sort of a different thing than living it out uh, for real. Uh, but here's this project that you're working on that, it, you know, it's just taken straight out of the experiences of uh, former foster youth. And so I'm interested to hear, um, how this idea of, of, of hope and highlighting that, uh, has come into play as you've interacted with some of these stories.
2: Yeah. So we're really, we've been loving and feeling so honored that we get to read these stories. Um, Yeah, I mean, Christy mentioned when we made Remove, we started getting hundreds and hundreds of messages from current youth in foster care or alum, foster alum. And it felt like such, like that for us was like the reason we made the film and the reason we made part two. um, That um, just realizing like, wow, like this is actually, uh, we actually have the opportunity to Uh, interact with the people who are actually going through it and they're responding to it in a positive way. Um, It may, it just, I think that our takeaway from all these messages was that there is a desire to be heard and to be known. And we have this, this whole uh, community of people who are in situations where they have, where they have to have such tremendous resiliency to get through it. Well,
3: Yeah, I think we found that the youth and the adults who were in foster care—they are so desiring to help other kids in foster care. Mm -hmm. It's really, it's really amazing. They want their stories shared because they want other kids who are in it to know that they can have a different life. And for many of them, no one was there like rooting them on. And they want to be that for someone else, mm-hmm. for another kid. And
1: one of the things, uh, one of the things we say about this podcast is um, that their voices make us better. And so I just uh, appreciate you guys um, creating that resource uh, because it's true that their voices uh, inspire us. They give us hope. Uh, they help us give hope to others, and so really grateful for what you guys uh, have done and continue to do. What is the name of the book? Now, just to be clear, it hasn't come out yet. Uh, you're in the process of, of putting it together. But um, if people want to learn more about it, what is the name of it, and where do they go?
2: Yeah, so the book's not done yet. We really so we're self publishing it, and we really want the foster care community to to. We don't want this to be something that we're doing. We want this to be a project of the entire foster care community. And it's not so much us publishing a book. It's more us as a community um, helping these kids share their own stories. Um, So right now we're calling it the foster care anthology. Um, And I don't know if that's going to be the final name of it, but... Um, it is an anthology because it's a collection of short stories and poems and artwork that have been contributed by kids and, and youth and adults who have been in foster care. So if people want to learn more about it, um, you can go to fostercareanthology.com.
1: Thanks for, um, the stories that you've told and the stories you continue to tell. And, uh, it's a, an enormous contribution to the movement, um, and to all of our families. So thanks so much.
2: Thank you so much, Jason. We appreciate you.
1: So they're great to talk to. Yeah, they're awesome. Um I love how they incorporate this element of hope mm-hmm. into their storytelling. Right. Um they are very very real and if you've seen either of those movies, you know it gets yeah, it very gets real. real. Yes. Um great. but they don't leave us without hope. Right. Um they they give us that anchor to hold on mm-hmm. to. And you know it makes me think what can we do for the kids that are around us that we interact with every day? Yeah. Uh to Plant those seeds of hope with them as well. Well, we are so grateful for the Matniks. We're grateful for Chardonnay. And we're grateful for you. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, We want to hear from you. Come find us on Facebook at the Foster Movement Podcast page. And you can get today's show notes um, and learn more about our guests at fostermovementpodcast.org. Now, we've got a lot of things on our website that uh, we hope will help you. Uh, Every one of you has the ability to help provide more than enough Mm -hmm. for kids and families in foster care right where you live. And we have created a number of tools and videos and this podcast all for the purpose of helping you to do that. Uh, That is something that God has uniquely placed you uh, in the place where you live to provide more than enough. And we want to help you. So if you want to learn more about Uh, the tools that are available to you, uh, please go to CAFO.org backslash foster movement. That's CAFO.org backslash foster movement. Well, until next time, thanks for all you do to speak up for kids and families in foster care. We're here to help you do that until there's more than enough.
0: This has been the Foster Movement Podcast. Join Jason Weber and Diego Fuller next time as they and their guests help you work with others to provide more than enough for kids and families in foster care where you live.
1: Hey, this is Jason and Diego again. Yes, and we're still
2: here because there's a couple of things that we want you guys to know.
1: That's right. First of all, be sure to download the free PDF we created, especially for listeners of this podcast.
2: It's called key things former foster youth want you to understand about caring for current foster youth.
1: This thing is beautiful and full of wisdom and insight from those who've been there. And I'm telling you, you need to print these babies out and give them to the foster parents and applicants you work with because these things are amazing. Just go to more than backslash free download. That's more than backslash free download.
2: Also, as you know, the Foster Movement Podcast is a limited series of just 18 episodes. But listen, it's okay. Don't be sad. Here's why. Because there's more where
1: that came from. Tell them, Jay. That's right. More Than Enough has produced a whole family of podcasts, one of which is called the More Than Enough Podcast.
2: So to learn more, go to morethanenoughtogether.org and click on the podcast link at the top of the homepage, and they are all there.
1: Hey, and one last thing. Thank you for listening. It's a privilege to be a part of your journey. Our team is here to help you work with others in your community to provide for children and families before, during, and beyond foster care until there's more than enough.